Untitled by Sorsha McNasty from 2011. We have never figured this out, and now the three living witnesses have to be good and drunk to discuss the whole thing. I was seven, my brother ten, my mom in her early 40s, my grandmother, her mom, in her 60s. So we were all cogent. No one was too young or too senile to not recall this nonsense. Yet, still no bloody answer. Grandma lived on an isolated country road in North Carolina that was named after her family since they were the only crazy people who lived on that land for about a thousand acres. And I do mean crazy. We have stories about relatives that start with, You remember that time Uncle Bob was in the ditch with a shotgun? Which time? Her house had been empty for several weeks while she'd been visiting us in Florida, but we were all back, spending the weekend with her before trekking back to the Sunshine State. The house is in the for real country, literally over train tracks, past the salvage yard and her nearest neighbor, a cousin. Everyone is related to everyone who owns a house on the road. Ain't within screaming distance. Yes, that seems to be a real system of measurements. Screaming distance. It's early in the a.m., like just before daybreak. We're awake because these are farm freaks who wake at the crack of dawn from sheer ingrained habit. We're eating cereal when we hear someone pull up outside. Curious, we all run to the big picture window that looks onto the front yard. There is a strange truck there. No one seems to be behind the wheel, though the engine is idling. The truck is, well, old for one thing. It's an old-timey, like from maybe the 1930s. You could picture the Jode family heading to California in this thing. It's rusted, but it was probably once painted blue. We stare at the thing, bewildered. Mom asks Grandma if she knows who that is. Nope, not a clue, says Grandma. She runs to get the phone to call her cousin and ask him to come up. She thinks maybe it's a hired hand and he's just at the wrong farm. Just as she asks him to come on down, the phone goes dead. Well, <laughs> that's unsettling. All at once, there is a loud, insistent banging on the front door. We all scream. My grandma, who is terrifyingly resourceful, huddles us all into the living room, away from a window where anyone can see us. Then, while mom, me, and my brother tremble there on the couch, she grabs a serrated bread knife from the kitchen and cautiously approaches the front door. She peeks out a side window, very stealthily. She turns back to us and looks confused. She shakes, her, she shakes her head like no one is there. We all kind of breathe easier. Then every door in the house is banging relentlessly. I can still hear it, rhythmic and terrifying, like all the doors are about to splinter and crack. There were two doors in the basement beneath us, so the sound is also a reverberation at our feet. The three ground floor doors are shaking. We can see them trembling and jerking on their hinges from our vantage point on the couch. Finally, Mom runs to the window. Either from a psychotic break with reality or terror, I have no clue. She cries, oh, thank Christ, cousin is here. We run to her and peek out the picture window. There is no one that we can see in the yard, but we can't see all the doors from our viewpoint. Cousin walks by truck with a shotgun in his hand. Cousin, it should be noted, has pretty much every gun ever made. He looks puzzled, looking at the rear of the truck. Then he glances in the cab window and he stops. He goes pale, runs a hand down his face. Then he runs toward the house, towards us. 
My grandmother flings open the kitchen door as she sees him coming. He shouts, everybody get behind the couch, get down. He runs past us as we bolt for the couch. The banging starts again, all the doors, and now we can hear the windows rattle. It's like a tornado or the end of the world. We are too scared to even scream. Cousin flings open the front door and fires the huge shotgun once. Bang! Deafening. As he does, the truck roars into life and it sounds like a train. We scramble up. The banging stops, mercifully. Cousin is advancing onto the lawn, gun leveled at the truck. We run behind him, wanting to be out of that shaking, quivering house and near the dude with the gun. The truck peels out, backwards, cutting across the yard and racing into a breakneck speed. Tires squeal. Rubber is burned. Cousin fires again, and we all cower behind him. He blows out the back window with the sound of a thousand plates smashing into linoleum, but the truck never even hiccups, just roars down the road. No tags. Not even a vanity plate on the back. There was no one behind the wheel of that thing. We all had a clear view. Everyone agreed. Not a driver in the cab. Well, not anything we could see, anyhow. The police were called. The phone line had been cut. There was not a single boot print in the entire yard except Cousins from where he'd run into and out of the house. Cousin reported that there had been no plate, but when he looked into the cab, it looked like, quote, something from a horror movie, end quote. He said there were all kinds of weird restraints, handcuffs, C-clamps, nylon straps, and he said the floorboards looked covered in what, quote, smelled like, end quote, blood to him. Cousin was famous for his keen sense of smell, and the window was down, so it's possible Cousin said he thought he saw a blur of something out the picture window and ran to fire the first shot, but missed because, once he stood there, nothing or no one was on the lawn or in the truck. Then it shot backwards out of the yard and out of our lives, leaving no answers, just a deep sense of unease every time we'd visit. Grandma and cousin have passed. Deeply religious people, they stuck by their unchanging version of the story until they died. My brother, mother, and I have never been able to figure it out. <laughs> Neither did the cops, I think it should be noted. We don't know how all the windows and doors were banging, and we don't know why we never saw a soul anywhere or how they could get around the sides of the house without leaving a trace in the damp earth. Need a Ride by Nikki. In my first job out of college, I moved from a big city to a rural coastal Louisiana to work for a newspaper. I'm talking an hour and a half south of New Orleans, deep in the swamp, alligators on the road, old people still speaking French to each other, and the only way between towns was miles and miles of remote two-lane highways winding along bayous. Late one night, I was coming back from an assignment extra tired. I worked hard at my job, slept bad, and the stress was bone deep. I just wanted to get back to the office, finish my writing for the night, and go home. Bayou Sail Road would get me to my destination sooner, though I hated to take it at night. It wound in sharp corners through the open pitch-black marsh. 
No shoulder, no street lights, just a few skeletal trees and the open grassy water. I slowed down to a crawl to drive it. This was the end of the world and no one was coming to get you if you made a mistake. But when I took one of the hard blind corners I had to slam on my brakes, there was an older man in the road and he didn't flinch even when my brights caught him in their spotlight. I wondered if he was drunk and worried about what I should do. There were no houses around here and he might be in some kind of trouble. I sat there with my foot on the brake, waiting for him to say something. Some small, desperate tale like, Thank God you came, I've been in an accident, or my car broke down and I need a ride into town. But he was as still and quiet as I was, and we only stared blankly at each other, waiting for the other to make a move. You could just leave, you know, a small part of me said. You're a woman and you're alone. No one would blame you. The only way past him on the narrow road would be to pass him so closely he could have reached out and touched my car door. I cracked my window and asked if he needed some help. He only looked at me. I started to feel a creeping panic, my body responding to the idea that something was wrong. Not this, it screamed. Not now. Not today. I'll call someone, I told him finally, and rolled my windows up firmly, checked the door locks, and took off around him. He didn't waver from his spot in the road, even as I hit the gas and carefully dipped around him, crunching on the narrow gravel shoulder. One quick turn, and he disappeared behind me in the marsh. I was spooked, so I drove fast and didn't stop, and waited until I finally saw the first lit-up signs of civilization, a gas station and convenience store, to get out of my car to call the cops in the presence of other people. The clerk listened silently while I reeled off my story on the phone to an officer who promised to drive down there and look for the man after taking my information. When I finally hung up, she said, You were down there on Bayou Sale? Yeah, I said. He was alone? No car? Yeah, I said. I have no idea how he got out there. There was nothing. He asked you for a ride, she said. No, I said. You offer to give him one, she said. Great, I thought. Now she thinks I'm some kind of asshole. No, I said, but good, she said, because that probably wasn't no man this time of night. The road, she said, was haunted by spirits who would often try to catch tourists, people who didn't know any better, and if you agreed to pick the spirit up, he could ask for another favor. Usually your soul, she said. I nodded gravely at the woman, but laughed hysterically to myself when I finally got back into my car, still shaking a bit with adrenaline and fear. What a stupid thing to get taken in by. The hitchhiking ghost was a classic kid's campfire story. I had more to fear from any living man than a dead man. When I still couldn't shake the creeps the next day, I called the cops back to see if they'd ever picked someone up. Sure, he'd just been some old drunk. They drove the road several times, the cop said. There was no one. She Never Left Our House by Mind the Middle Schmertz. A few years later, we left our little cabin in the woods to move to a new house a bit closer to town. I had my very own room and spent a lot of time in it playing alone and reading in it. Every now and then, I would hear what sounded like footsteps or banging coming from below my floorboards. I guessed it was just normal house sounds, maybe pipes, and I got used to it. After a few months of pretty non-stop banging, which no one else could hear, things started to escalate. Heavy furniture started falling down on its own. 
a solid oak dresser simply toppled over as I was sitting on my bed across the room reading. A few days later, I was playing with my Teddy Ruxpin doll when it suddenly drained of batteries. I asked my father to put new ones in, only to find that they ran down again almost immediately. We assumed the toy was broken and forgot about it. From the day we arrived in the house, I had known I wasn't alone in that room. I had grown up in isolation and know what that felt like. This was different. I started responding to the knocking sounds. Stop it. I'm trying to read. My mother was moderately concerned, but assumed I was just playing with an imaginary friend. A few months later, I had started to experience odd dreams in which I relived very commonplace memories in the house. For example, I remembered in vivid detail walking between the laundry room and my mother's art studio, sliding my little body between the framing. I knew for certain that the framing had been up for some time before they got around to sheetrocking. I asked my mother over breakfast one morning when it was that we'd finished the basement. She looked at me, puzzled, and responded that the basement had in fact always been finished. The banging sounds got louder. Nothing battery-powered would last more than a few minutes in my room, and things were constantly moving around. Small items, diaries, stuffed animals, keepsakes, would rearrange themselves on a near-daily basis. I felt that whatever I was sharing my room with was angry, scared, like the puppy we had adopted years ago. I started speaking to it more, and at this point started to feel strongly that whatever it was I was living with was female. The more I spoke out loud, the less things moved about. I felt a kind of longing, like I had knocked on a door and was waiting to be let in. One night I woke from sleep, inexplicably. I decided to get up to have a drink of water and walked across the hall into the bathroom. Now, I should mention that this house had been built in the 1970s, and there were many small mirrors, gold-flecked throughout. The bathroom, however, had an entire wall of mirrors that you looked into as you sat to pee. Bleary-eyed, I shuffled into the bathroom and sat down. Suddenly, my skin turned to goose flesh, and I felt as though cold water had been poured down the back of my neck. I stood up, panicked, only to line my reflection up with a figure standing to face me. A figure that wasn't mine. I tilted my head to the right and to the left. Our reflection did the same. It was me, but it wasn't me. She had shorter hair and slighter features. She wore blue pajamas where I wore a long sleeping shirt. We regarded each other, and I lifted my hand slowly to wave. She smiled and faded out. I waited for an hour, sat on the bathroom floor waiting for her to reappear. Finally, I crept back to bed but couldn't sleep. The next morning, I was riding along in the car with my mother, and I asked, Do you know who lived in this house before we did? My mother answered nonchalantly, The woman who lived here before us was a reporter. I asked, Did she have a daughter? My mother tensed. Why would you ask that? I didn't answer. She didn't, my mother went on, but she was convicted of a crime that involved a little girl. My mother trailed off. She knew that I was a strange child, and I suspect at this moment she realized that in fact my imaginary friend might be something entirely different. What did they do to her? I asked cautiously. Well, my mother began, the woman who lived here helped her boyfriend to abduct this little girl, and she was never found. I sat quietly for a moment, and then, as my mother reports it, said very slowly, she never left our house. 
I watched my mother's knuckles turn white on the steering wheel. I thought I was in trouble. You see, when my parents looked at our new home, they had wondered about the low price. The house had been foreclosed when its previous occupant had been sent to jail. A few families had come to look at it, but in a small and very religious community, people were hesitant to move into a house associated with so much darkness. We were poor, and my parents had two children living on top of one another in a cabin with no central heating. They didn't have the luxury of worrying about the stigma of living in a house with a complicated history. A few months later, we moved into a condo on the other side of town. My parents never explained the move to us as children, but I always suspected that it was because my mother was afraid of my relationship with the girl in my bedroom. In the few months we lived in the house, I had never been able to look in the crawl space, a dark, meter-high area that ran the length of the house. It had clay, dirt floors, and a small light you had to crawl to on all fours. The, days, the day we moved our things away, I went down to the basement to say my goodbyes. She had been kept there, I was sure of it. How else would I have had her memories of the basement unfinished? As I turned to walk up the stairs, the light bulb in the crawl space flickered on, swinging, just for a second. She was reaching out one more time, telling me where she was, asking me to free her, too.